Hello and welcome again to Sport Unlocked with a focus this week on organised crime gangs and sport. That's after sanctions were imposed on the boxing promoter Daniel Kinahan. We'll hear from the authorities and what happened when Tyson Fury faced the media. Plus, there's the latest on that protracted sale of Chelsea. And in the world of FIFA, there's a date set for the trial of Blatter and Platini, news of a current top FIFA executive departing, and there's the launch of FIFA's streaming platform. No room just yet for Sport Unlocked on FIFA Plus, but I'm sure FIFA are delighted as ever to hear from us. For myself, Rob Harrison, the Associated Press, from Tarek Panja from the New York Times, and Martin Ziegler from the Times. Now, Martin, we have all been a bit static this week, maybe. No major off-field event for us to report from together in person. They've not not been that many uh, sort of fixed events, have they? But still been uh, still been managed to keep myself busy, um, which and I see, as I guess you two have. Yeah, I've actually w- watched quite a bit of sport this week as well. The, the Champions League has been very exciting. We might have some more disciplinary cases for for UEFA as a result of this week as well, Martin. Unseemly events up, especially in Madrid with Atletico against Manchester City. Yeah, scuffles and lots of fighting and. It's the world of fighting we actually begin with because the news of Daniel Kinahan, the boxing promoter who has been linked to Tyson Fury in the past. Well, pretty incredible story developed this week when we discovered from American authorities that a $5 million reward had been offered for information relating to the Kinahan crime gang headed by Daniel Kinahan and Irish police this week speaking out against him and it really relates to the crime network they are involved in. There's no allegations of wrongdoing involving Tyson Fury or any other boxers they've been associated with. But now the search is on for Kinahan and to break up this criminal network that has infiltrated sports. The, the links between Kinahan and organised crime and boxing have been around for you know some time, you know, back a few years. Um, this is the first time that, that though the uh, a government has come out and put a reward in his head, sanctioned him. So there's really no excuse now for people from the world of boxing to continue their involvement with him. Um, we've we've had Tyson Fury um, recently saying um, in the last two years saying that he he he'd arranged a, a two match bout with with Anthony Joshua. Uh, and then very recently, the, the president of the World Boxing Council is from Mexico, actually went to Dubai, met Kinahan, um, and despite the fact that you know, there's all this sort of controversy around him. So that can't happen again. And it's uh, MTK, his, the, the company he founded, they've issued a statement saying that he has no connection with them at all. But he still seems to be really, really heavily involved in, you know, people, boxers still going to meetings, signing up with him. MTK said they parted ways with him in 2017 and has had no interest in the business since then. Yeah, I, yeah they, they've said that. But as Mike said, massively connected with, with boxers from Fury Down. I mean, there was um, a tweet and a photograph um, you know, a couple of months ago, a couple of months ago, they're, they're, they're pals as much as anything else. And those links have been something raised throughout the week, particularly at the press conference held in Dublin, featuring representatives of authorities from the US, Britain and Ireland. So where do the Kinahans rank in terms of crime gangs worldwide? Here to explain is the US Department of Treasury's Gregory Gat Janis. As of today, the Kinahan Transnational Criminal Organization joins the ranks of Italy's Camorra, Mexico's Los Zetas, Japan's Yakuza, 
and Russia's thieves-in-law. We also heard from Britain's National Crime Agency at the press conference about boxing's need to cut ties with the Kinahans. Here's Deputy Director of Investigations, Matt Horn. It is absolutely a matter for, for, for sport and the leaders of sport and the participants in that to take a look at who they're doing business with and, um, and, and whether they're comfortable with that and to take the right, the right steps. That's, that's an appropriate matter for, for the sporting community to address. And absolutely, all of us will work together on any leads, intelligence, evidence that we can, get, we can glean to continue to target this group. Yeah, just to make clear the reason why so much money has been put on his head and why there's, there's so much um, involvement from the law enforcement authorities is that you know, this isn't just a, you know, a, a sort of petty gang member. This is someone who's head of a crime family accused of more than a dozen involvement in more than a dozen gangland murders, um, many of them sort of execution style, international drug smuggling, arms smuggling. So this, it's heavy stuff, absolutely. Boxing is on these um, channels in the UK, for example, BT and Sky and big uh, American networks as well. To, yes, this has been announced and they're going to have to, and this guy's been sanctioned, but how, how, have they, how have they been able to do business with this group while, you know, while the reports of Kinahan's involvement in organised crime has been around for the last few years? How have they been able to just carry on? Well, Kinahan's never been convicted of a crime, and that might be the reason why they've obviously continued doing business. Sky Sports say that they're aware of development, and they said in a statement, we always scrutinise and act responsibly in our boxing relationships. Do you think the challenge is for broadcasters, sponsors, anyone associated with boxing is, who do they really know is acting behind the scenes? Do they prefer to turn a blind eye some people? Do some boxers prefer to perhaps try to, you know, some of these relations are harder to untangle in public? Well, I mean, back in September, um, Eddie Hearn, who's the chief of matchroom boxing, he gave, he gave an interview to um, a, a, a newspaper where he said that um, he suggested Sky had spoken to Kinahan about fights involving three boxers managed by MTK. And when, when this was published, Sky were absolutely um, as quick as you like. Um, saying that they absolutely not spoken to Kinahan and that they have, and, that, and they've said, said again this week that they are not they are not going to do so and they act very responsibly. And BT, which is showing the the Fury fight, they they say that they have sort of anti corruption and bribery clauses in all of their contracts, which they actively enforce. So I think they're very very well aware that they cannot be seen to do anything which might talk to Kinahan or any of his associates. However, boxing is such a sort of strange sport that you can have, you know, middlemen to the middlemen and then, you know, somebody connected with him who the broadcasters may not know has connections with him may still end up having to deal with that person. Well, that point was brought up directly in the press conference and Irish police chief Drew Harris was asked about Sports broadcasters who might want to still show bouts the Kinahans are involved with somehow. Let's take a listen to his answer. In respect of, of broadcasters, I think just my overall comment in respect of just the business of sports. Today we've, met, we've made it very clear through this announcement who and what exactly the, the Kinahan Organised Crime Group is. Individuals, specific individuals have been sanctioned and it's then for business to make a decision Considering the probity of their own business, the probity then of the, all the business uh, 
that, that, that comes from sport, and also then their fans, and even just then the reputation of a sport, whether they should carry on uh, in, in any business dealings with, uh, with, um, with any of these sanctioned individuals. And then in fact then, uh, in the US, that's, that is in fact prohibited. And that's Drew Harris of the Irish Police or Gardaí. So we are left wondering, why have boxers maintained those connections with Kinahan for just so long? He's clearly very popular as well with, with, with the boxers that are in his camp. And there, there's numerous boxers from, from, from Fury down. And do you remember there was a statement by Tyson Fury? If the fight didn't happen because I think Joshua got beaten, but he said he's just got off the phone with Daniel Kinahan and he's told me he's lined up a big fight for, for um, Fury and Joshua in Saudi Arabia. That was going to be one of the biggest boxing bouts of all time. And it, it just shows you, um, I guess, the, the, the sort of prominence of, of the guy. And how, how do you then move on from it? These guys aren't going to say, right, obviously the, the sanctions are very serious. We've seen Roman Abramovich. You, you can't do business with these people. But the relationships are going to be quite hard to cut, presumably. Somebody was explaining to me in the sport, because I asked a question, you know, how can he still be so closely involved? And he says, well, for a start, um, the pays a lot of the boxers, and so they, he has influence with them. And so when they want to organise a fight, they because he's paid them, they they, they are, feel obliged to sort of go through him or they, they could be in all sorts of trouble. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And the other is, when we're talking about these huge, huge fights... There's so much money involved, and it's international, so it's um, sort of a bit easier to perhaps um, to get hold of if you if you're if you've got a, a problem with your local domestic law enforcement authorities. So there is so much money to be made by various people around boxing that if, if somebody like Kinnahan can set up these fights and act as the middleman, then people are going to go to him if they're unscrupulous. And, you know, let's face it, boxing has had a history of a big involvement of people, you know, from organised crime back to the 50s and 60s. And Irish police say that the Kinahan gang is worth more than a billion euros through its uh, criminal enterprise. And we've previously had Kinahan named as being involved in organised crime, international drug trafficking operations, firearm offences. And there is a lot of interest in hearing from Tyson Fury about Kinahan. There was a press conference this week involving Fury ahead of the defence of his WBC heavyweight title against fellow Briton Dillian White at Wembley Stadium on April the 23rd. But on the Zoom call broadcast on YouTube, as the boxing writer and commentator Gareth A. Davis put it in the Daily Telegraph, Tyson Fury's promotional team blocked all questions about his association with Kinahan. Davis, it seems, was the only British newspaper journalist to get a question. Should he have tried to ask anyway? This is what happened when the news conference host introduced him. We also hear from Fury, promoter Bob Aram, and then the question that Gareth A. Davis did ask. Gareth, I guess I don't even need to say your last name. You're, you're like Madonna, right? You just go by one name. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, hi, just Gareth. Hi, Russell. With the friggin' sunglasses in the evening over there. Um, it is evening, but it is sunny. Um, Tyson, can I ask you, um, 
do you enjoy the distraction from this point onwards? And what, what is the biggest distraction for you in fight week as you're preparing mentally for, a, and again, a very important, maybe the most important fight of your career? No distractions for Tyson Fury in terms of having to face questions about Daniel Kinahan. Will he get them in his further media appointments in the countdown to his fight at Wembley Stadium next week? We'll wait to find out. As Donald McRae in The Guardian pointed out, all media were muted on the call until they were asked. Though there was no way of breaking what he called the omerta of silence that engulfs boxing when it comes to discussing the deeply troubling influence of Kinahan. Matt Lawson in the Times expressed shock. The opening question was from an American boxing journalist who was more interested in asking what it meant for Fury to be fighting at home in Britain than the Kinahan case. The message from authorities that we've heard this week at that incredible press conference in Dublin was that sport needs to look at the probity of its business dealings, something that could apply all around the world, beyond the world of boxing. And this is so often a podcast looking at criminal cases in sport as we do so now again, but this time to Switzerland. The news of a trial date for the former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, and the ex-UEFA chief, Michel Platini. Yeah, they're, um, they're up in June in, um, in well, I, I say in Switzerland. Actually, it's on the, uh, the Swiss-Italian border. Um, uh, and the, I think it's down for a, a week, isn't it? Yeah, this takes us all back to 2015, those chaotic weeks when Michel Platini and Sepp Blatter were brought down from their positions as president of FIFA and UEFA and all over this backdated salary that Platini received in 2011 of around $2 million. It was all related to his work as a presidential advisor for Blatter around 1998 to 2002. And it led to their bans from world football, prevented Platini becoming... FIFA president, and now it is being uh, subject to this criminal trial. Uh, Blatter himself is getting on. He turned 86 last month, and Platini will celebrate his 67th birthday during the trial in June. Celebrate, celebrate to, perhaps he won't celebrate it during the trial. <laughs> well, no, it's hardly the best way he wants to be celebrated, uh, to be marking <laughs> his birthday. <laughs> I mean, Platini has always denied wrongdoing. He's always insisted it was legitimate. But, you know, Platini has been charged with fraud, misappropriation, forgery, as well as being accomplice to Blatter's uh, alleged mismanagement and the misappropriation of FIFA funds that Blatter is also accused of relating to, to this particular payment. And, you know, a lot of said, why would the payment necessarily be made in 2011? Well, that was the exact time that Blatter was preparing for his re-election campaign against Mohammed bin Haman, and uh, Platini was a key component of that election, wasn't he? He was, he was, because um, as these elections have shown, you 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 get in with the Confederation presidents, and they 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 bring you a block of votes. That is um, democracy, FIFA style, and and I guess it hasn't changed much. Um, since Blatter left, Gianni Infantino, we heard in Doha um, recently, is going for re-election and already getting the Africa vote um, whipped. Um, we've seen these letters starting to pour in from, from that confederation. Uh, Amadou Pinnock, the Nigerian FA president, appears to be the man charged with, with getting the, the African uh, vote behind um, Infantino. And, you know, plus d'achange. 
Is it? Uh, I've seen these um, sort of um, template letters being <laughs> being circulated for to the uh, the CAF federations, where you basically just like fill in your name and the, and the name Gianni Infantino, and then you send it off. Um, seems a, a sort of fairly fairly simple but fairly effective measure. Does it remind you of that? You know, those footballers who get caught with those uh, Twitter messages that say, yes. say something like <laughs> it can look very templated and uh, if they actually want even further guidance from FIFA what to do they can now tune into FIFA's own streaming platform because this is the week when FIFA took on Netflix and Amazon by launching FIFA Plus so if you do want to watch a lot of FIFA documentaries or catch up on some live games around the world some lower level in men's and women's football then FIFA have now created their own platform. It does seem perhaps a land grab by FIFA. Yeah, interesting move. Um, I mean, it's quite, there's some quite good things in it. There's, um, you know, this this idea that you're going to be able to access some of its archive. Um, I think that that could be potentially really interesting. Yeah, I, I, agree. I agree. I don't think it's been in the works for for a number of years. I'm thinking back to that aborted. $25 billion contract with SoftBank. There was going to be um, an effort to create um, a digital um, product sim- similar to this, but with, with perhaps more important rights. But um, yeah, I think the archive is really good because like a lot of us who've, who follow football, a lot of our memories are from when when we were younger. We, we, we have those um, perhaps rose-tinted views of, of World Cups from days gone by. It's nice that would be in one place. But these these leagues will also get um, prominence they don't have. Um, do you think, guys, I'll ask you a question, because FIFA will perhaps be buying these rights from from these FAs who run these leagues. And obviously, Gianni Infantino is up for re-election. Is that you know, another way of perhaps supporting those who support you? Because the federations do actually own the rights to show World Cup qualifiers themselves. In Europe, they are sold collectively by UEFA with UEFA guaranteeing income to the key federations who are handing over the rights but yeah this is a way of FIFA handing out money to various FAs around the world and you know there are some games that are harder to view so in the UK it's not particularly easy to watch qualify for the World Cup from North America from CONCACAF or from South America even and those federations are sort of scrambling to sell the rights or very often just leave them unsold. So it does make sense for FIFA to try to create a platform to show games that aren't getting the visibility elsewhere around the world, but they're not really indicating much at the launch that that really is the plan. Although the officials involved did tell me that there will be options for geo-blocking. So you could just put, say, a US or a Brazil game viewable in the UK and it's blocked out for the rest of the world. But it is quite complicated still uh, to do that they haven't ruled out potentially charging down the line. So it is free now. You don't even need a login. But it does create a bargaining chip for FIFA to offer if broadcasters are playing hardball around the world over the value that they could threaten to do it themselves. And we did see this before the 2018 World Cup when Italy hadn't qualified and FIFA hadn't sold the rights and it was getting quite close to the World Cup. And uh, they obviously had to strike some sort of deal with Italian broadcasters, maybe having their own product their own platform is something that they can sort of dangle as the ability to sort of just go it alone mm. so it's a thing which lots of sports organizations have um 
have looked at. I know it's been long been talked about. You know, could the Premier League have its own OTT platform um, to, to to stream matches to specific territories? So um, it's uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's an interesting development, one to keep an eye on. It, it is, and it it's not the um, like first mover in this space either. UEFA, I remember announced UEFA TV a while back. And, and and that was a streaming service, and that is a streaming service where you can watch youth, women's futsal, some classic match, very similar to this. So, you know, th- th- these are, it's another example of a governing body taking advantage of new technology and, and, and rights it has and is at the moment unable to to sort of get top dollar for and put it, put it out there in the on the internet. What was also interesting about that FIFA call is it was a chance to speak to FIFA's chief commercial officer Kay Madati who we hadn't heard much from in his less than a year in the role and then within a day of the launch of FIFA Plus having spoken to him only a few days earlier FIFA announces departure so now FIFA have had to appoint their fourth different chief marketing executive in less than four years and the replacement who will carry the title of chief business officer is Romney Gay, former Juventus and United Arab Emirates League official. Yeah, I wonder if changing the job title will will extend the longevity of the person in the post. So you've had Philippe Lafloc, an ex-colleague of Gianni Infantino's from uh, UEFA. He was the first guy who came in after Gianni took over. Uh, after, after that, you had Simon Thomas, another ex-UEFA team marketing guy, come in. Didn't last very long, and and now then you had Kay as you mentioned, and 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 this and this new chap also Rob Luis Vicente the digital uh, um, chap he he was there briefly promising all sorts of things he 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 left I, I don't know what it says is it maybe micromanaging from Gianni these people don't seem to last very long at all whether he's not the easiest person to work with or is demanding or he himself has experience from this area as being UEFA general secretary so maybe he's got the inside truck and actually how the job should be done yeah FIFA said in their statement that uh, Kay Medati is leaving for personal reasons I think he's leaving in June and a big challenge for his successor because there's a lot of sponsorship deals to be done for the 2026 World Cup in the US Canada and Mexico with quite a few of those deals running out after the Qatar tournament that starts in November well We know Russia won't be at that World Cup as things stand. FIFA did go to court to protect itself against Russia's appeal against its disqualification from World Cup qualifying. And now we have some more details about that case, which, of course, was launched by FIFA after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And particularly, we had teams refusing to play Russia in the playoffs. So Poland, the Czech Republic and Sweden said they wouldn't play Russia and that ultimately led to in part the decision to suspend them and some of that detail emerged in the court of arbitration for sport documentation that we had this week. Yeah this was the um, Russia's failed attempt to to provisionally suspend its suspension so um, get the Russian teams back in until there can be a, a full hearing and and um, Cass dismissed it but there were as you say some interesting reasons um, and What's interesting is FIFA's case has nothing to do with human rights or anything ethical. It was to do with um, basically the smooth running of its flagship competition, the World Cup, and so a force majeure. 
And it basically said FIFA said that Poland, Sweden, the Czech Republic, um, their decisions not to play Russian teams are, must be fully exp- um, respected by them. And they're fully understandable and can't be criticised from a legal or moral point of view. And guys, doesn't that raise the question of when other conflicts arise and teams don't want to play each other? This feels like a precedent that's now been set. I did feel at the time when this suspension was put in place that it would be creating a precedent for future complaints and future conflicts between nations without ever having that clarity as we lack still from FIFA over just how this decision was reached. A decision based on emotion rather than necessarily following clear aspects of the FIFA statutes. Do do you think they're going to have to just change the statutes now in order for for this to actually be defined rather than this, this nebulous position it finds itself in now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it might be difficult to change the statutes, won't it? I think I think that I don't think they will be able to actually easily. I think they'll just muddle through and hope it's another sixty years before this uh, a similar uh, event comes up again. Yeah, it'd be hugely potentially divisive, maybe in terms of actually trying to get that wording and getting it through the FIFA Congress. Uh, one of the unresolved issues is over Ukraine and its qualification for the World Cup. We have had Shakhtar Donetsk, one of their teams that's already been exiled from its home city of Donetsk for some years since 2014, since Russian separatists uh, did uh, move into the Donbass. Shakhtar has managed to start playing elsewhere this week. It's been playing peace matches. And now actually we do have details of just what will happen to Ukraine's World Cup qualifying playoff semi-final against Scotland. It will be played on June the 1st, was due to be in March. And then the winner of that game will be playing Wales on June the 5th. So that is exactly how, obviously, FIFA hoping things now do pan out after they uh, took that decision on Thursday. It'll be amazing um, if Ukraine are able to fulfill that, fulfill that fixture with everything that's been going on, that's for sure. The good news is um, the players will have a chance to prepare for that. Um, the Ukrainian government has given permission for the Ukrainian footballers to leave the country in order to, to play. Um, and the Dynamo Kiev and um, Shakhtar Donetsk are on this European tour to raise funds for the war effort, but also to ensure the players are fit for these games. They're playing friendly games all across Europe and they, they've started in the in the last week. So that, that, in a way, hopefully will ensure that those games or that game might be played in, with, with the players in the right condition. Russian cases causing a lot of headaches for various sports bodies, not just FIFA. Also, FIA, the motorsport governing body, investigating a Russian carter who appeared to perform a Nazi salute on the podium. This was after winning a European Championship race in Portugal, Artem Shevarukim. Yeah, and it was the fact he's 15 years old as well was kind of shocking. He, he's denied doing it, but if you if you see the video, um, it really does look a lot like a Nazi salute. Um, Artem Shevarukin said he actually was... Um, waving at his friends and family who had gathered in, in front of the podium. And he was driving under an Italian license because, of course, the FIA has banned Russian competitors. Yeah, Artem Severyukin, his, his team have sacked him um, 
And it does look very much, he said he, he, his behavior was foolish. So it does seem as like he was perhaps I don't, his idea of some kind of joke or something like that. But um, it's obviously gone down very, very badly. And uh, I don't think he will be doing that again. No, not a great look for, for, for Russia as President Vladimir Putin has said they're in Ukraine partly to rid the country of who? Of, who, of Nazis. It's all that strange, that thing about the uh, Putin referring to the Nazis, because actually there's nothing in my mind that I've seen which has been more more fascist behaviour than Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the the steps it's taken to clamp down on opposition in, in Russia itself. And of course called a genocide this week by uh, Joe Biden. And yet sports are still struggling to punish Russians. We've had the international governing body for Luge having difficulties in terms of suspending Russian athletes because there's been a ruling overturning it. Yeah, there was a ruling overturned by its own disciplinary panel's appeals body. Um, you know, Luge is a winter sport, so I don't know if there's going to be that many Luge events taking place in the next few months. I understand there is a, a summer event on on wheels that, that might go ahead. But again, it talks about the um, statute books of these sports bodies, I suppose. They're not prepared for some of this stuff. No, and a big one for the Premier League still involving the Russia fallout is the ongoing enforced sale of Chelsea after Roman Abramovich was sanctioned by the British government and disqualified from running the European champions, deposed European champions as they will be because they went out of the Champions League this week at Real Madrid. Well, also this week, we've had another Chelsea director sanctioned, Eugene Tenenbaum, who was also now subject to an asset freeze like his close associate Abramovich. Tenenbaum took control of some of Abramovich's assets immediately after the war was launched by Russia in February. Another Abramovich associate, David Davidovich, then took control of the firm, Irvington Investments, and he has also been sanctioned by the government this week. As for the sale of Chelsea, final bids were in this week on Thursday and one dropped out right at the end. The group led by the Chicago Cubs owners, the Ricketts family, whose interest had met with resistance from Chelsea fans over past Islamophobic comments by Joe Ricketts. The statement announcing they wouldn't submit a final bid said in the process of finalising the proposal, it became increasingly clear that certain issues could not be addressed given the unusual dynamics around the sale process. The statement did say that they wished the new owners well. And we have three remaining bidders. We've been hearing more from them this week about who's funding some of the deals and the fact that they will be making cash offers. Chelsea could sell for three billion pounds which would be the most expensive sports sale in history so martin who is in the running at this final stage and the fact is they all do involve north american sports team owners i can tell you that they've all got um american links haven't they so um there's the consortium led by todd bowley the part owner of the los angeles dodgers we've got the boston celtics go over steve pagliuca we've got um, the Sir Martin Broughton stroke Seb Co backed consortium, which Josh Harris looks to be funding. So, yeah, lots of American sporting connections there. And interestingly, the Pagliuca bid does involve someone else from the LA Dodgers as well. So, uh, we've got Todd Borry actually part of his own consortium, but then we also do have Peter. Goober, who's uh, involved in the Dodgers' ownership as well as the Golden State Warriors and Los Angeles Football Club of MLS. So 
I don't think I really grasped how many of these American sports owners were involved in so many different teams until really this Chelsea process. You know, I think the Americans think that they are, you know, this is a sort of safe bet. <laughs> I mean, I still, I still think that someone, they, if they're going to be paying three billion pounds, or I don't think it's going to be quite that much, but but even so, a huge amount of money, and they have to commit to another billion for the stadium. Or, um, I just. I just cannot see where they're going to get their money back. It's it's it, it's a strange. I still think it's a strange one that they're paying so much money for this because it's 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 a club whose success has been sort of inflated by Roman Bramovich putting so much money in over the years. And just a reminder that is one point five billion in in losses that have funded this success. And you know, you think about these Americans as investors and successful businessmen. You would have thought they don't like losing money, but as you say, Martin, I can't see how they don't if Chelsea is to is to maintain that success. Speaking of Abramovich, this is the week where the bulk of his vast fortune appears to have been frozen. Um, Jersey has announced that it has basically frozen seven billion dollars um, worth of his his overall assets. He's valued at around ten billion. He might need. He might need all this money from from Chelsea if it, one day it's um, it figures a way to, to un, un, unfreeze this. I've got a bunch of questions about the the process as well. Um, the people who are selling this, they're not saying much, keeping tight lip. But Ray, you know, we heard Rain and the bankers are say are still talking about this charity money. Guys, any any clarity as to how this money, when it comes in? from the successful bidder will be dispersed. Where does it go? And and who decides if, if it does indeed go to uh, a charity linked to the war in Ukraine, as Abramovich has said? And if it was a charity that he starts or his own foundation, because that gives him, as we've mentioned before, his own platform going forward after Chelsea, a whole status internationally to go around. We've not heard much in recent days about his own involvement in peace talks. That seemed to sort of fade away after his sort of seen on the side of the rooms in Turkey yeah, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, all we know from the government is that the, the money initially will go into a frozen account so he can't, Abramovich can't get access to it. I think the government's expectation is it will be used um, to help the victims of, of the war. But the details of that, yeah, remain very much sort of um, murky. Just to go back to Americans investing in, in, in um, football clubs and Britain, British football clubs. Randy Lerner, do you remember he who um, bought Aston Villa? Uh, sold lost it. 20, a lot of money. He lost two hundred and fifty million pounds. Um, and he, uh, he, he Ellis Shaw, Sunderland, about the same amount. I would have thought. Yeah. So there is. There are. I mean, Chelsea is obviously you know European champions and the, you know a big name, but it's you know in many ways Aston Villa. Could claim to be a sort of bigger and more historical club, so it's it it's nothing is guaranteed in terms of financial success. Also, these consortiums have got bigger and bigger. It feels like a GoFundMe for billionaires. Every few days, one of these consortiums seems to add another wealthy person into it. I'd love to know how, with all the egos of all these very rich people, who's going to call the shots and how it runs? Because these people. You know, are all successful in their own right. Who have the final say on on how on how Chelsea will work and how it operates? Because 
someone's going to want to be the front man. And if they get to the Champions League final, who's going to get the best seat? I think we've seen as well, maybe some of the people named with the bids are perhaps for PR and for actual sort of public consumption and aren't necessarily putting in wealth themselves. But it helps to sort of present this image when you've, you're not really sure of the factors that will determine the winning bid. But if you can present yourself as really embedded in the Chelsea culture or with the fans, then it helps them. The big role now for the Premier League will be to determine if the new owner is fit and proper. Does it pass the owners and directors test? And some intriguing news was uncovered on how exactly that process takes place by you, Martin, this week. So Peter McCormick, is the, in January, was appointed the interim chairman of the, of the Premier League, uh, a, a position he's filled before, actually, a few years ago, and he was interim chairman of the FA last year. But anyway, it turns out that his solicitor firm, McCormick's, do basically all the owners and directors test work for the Premier League. So this sort of slightly strange um, situation where the chairman's company is doing work and earning hundreds of thousands of pounds from the Premier League. Uh, and not surprisingly, to me anyway, the Tracy Crouch, the former sports minister, um, who carried out the review of, of football last year, has called it an unacceptable conflict of interest. Yeah, it's not um, a shock for football to find itself bound in some new conflict of interest scandal, is it? Um... Just to ask you guys what you think about it. I mean, for the Premier League's argument is that he said he, he will recuse himself from any board votes on on takeovers so you know he he personally is actually you know from what i understand he's heavily involved in doing the the chelsea takeover you know owners and directors test work but then he won't vote on it on the board he'll just leave it to the other board members is that good enough do you think no no but why put yourself in that situation why why put yourself in a situation where you have to jump through all these hoops and um you know the busy peter mccormack has to leave the room etc he's got as you said, quite a lot on his plate already. Um, is there not another law firm that can do this work? A needless situation the Premier League have probably got themselves in. I mean, it's not like a sports news podcast where there's really only one of them. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, the other thing is, you know, McCormick's, you know, for its clients include, for example, the Norwich City owners, um, Delia Smith. Um, now, if you have a situation where the, the you know the, the the chairman of the Premier League, one of his clients is one of the clubs, again that's you know seems a bit wrong to me. Um, I just don't think you can have any sort of if you're the chairman or interim chairman of the Premier League, I don't think you should be able to have any sort of commercial arrangements with with, with any clubs or takeover um, type work at all. It's a very kind of clubbable industry, isn't it? You know, I'll just let Dave do it, let John do it. You know, I know this guy, phone him. It doesn't seem very, like, open to outsiders. And maybe someone like Tracy Crouch or whatever's going to happen might help sort of smash the the, the, the old-fashioned way of business as usual. Yeah, I think uh, change is certainly coming. It'll be interesting to see just quite how that change um in terms of a regulator, it turns out. I think that's that's going to be the key. And not just in the Premier League, where there could be a big takeover coming soon. 
just time to mention from Serie A, there could be Middle East investors for the first time as AC Milan, we've now discovered, are in exclusive takeover talks with the Bahrain-based private equity firm Investcorp. Could it end the ownership of the US-based hedge fund Elliott Management? That's been going four years. It's looking pretty good for AC Milan on the pitch at the moment. They're top of Serie A as they chase their first title since 2011. Could they be getting new investment now if this potential billion dollar takeover does go through well that about brings an end to this week's episode of sport unlock but before we go martin news of an intriguing legal battle including two footballers wives that's had a lot of people gripped in england yeah this is the uh, um wagatha christie case colleen rooney and who's being sued by rebecca vardy and uh Rooney's legal team in trying to access her WhatsApp messages and I've been told in court that the IT expert has forgotten the password to the data so they can't actually get the the WhatsApp messages between uh, that Rebecca Vardy had sent so sounds like another classic um taking taking uh, a bit of a, a tip from the the Russian 2018 World Cup bid team and who uh, said all their all their computers have been destroyed some rotten luck. Didn't one of the phones get lost at sea as well, Martin? Well, exactly. Yes, it's the same. I think the, the 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 phone was also lost at sea, and then when they tried to retrieve the messages from the server, yeah, the uh, the password was forgotten. So huh. we can't quite escape a Russia link with any of our stories this week or at the moment as the the war continues, but. That about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport and Lot. For me, Rob Harris from Tarek Panja and Martin Ziegler. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Great stuff, guys. Speak soon. And enjoy the sport in the days ahead. You can message us at Sport and Lot on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.